Funding for the Hinckley Report and this podcast is made possible in part by the Cleone Peterson Eccles Endowment Fund and AARP Utah. Thank you for listening to the Hinckley Report, your weekly political roundup. Additional support comes from State Street, produced by KUER. Hosts Sean Higgins and Sage Miller take a fresh look at politics the Utah way. Get episodes wherever you listen to podcasts or at statestreetpod.org. Good evening and welcome to the Hinckley Report. I'm Jason Perry, director of the Hinckley Institute of Politics. Covering the week, we have Ben Winslow, reporter with Fox 13 News. Holly Richardson, editor of utahpolicy.com. And Chris Blake, partner with RRJ Consulting. One week has passed since the legislative session ended. We had a chance to rest, start talking about what happened during those 45 days. It's interesting, uh, Chris, we'll start with you because we had a record number of bills passed. It was 575, and for those watching, that beat the record by one. 574 was the record before in 2019, but this was also a session full of fairly significant legislation. Yeah, I, I have, this was my 25th legislative session. I think it was the most consequential, uh, really, in the history of the state. I've asked that of a number of people. I say that with some regret, you and I having worked in a number of those sessions together up there. But I, the number of items that they dealt with that have consequence and significance that will last, I think, 5, 10, 15, 20 years is really significant and not to be underestimated. And I say that as both bills that people really love and bills that people uh, really have some concerns about, but I think the consequence of it uh, is really significant on the uh, citizens of the state of Utah. Go ahead, Holly. Well, I will just say that maybe the session where they gave women the right to vote, that was pretty consequential. But, <laughs> but, but I agree with the, with the spending, so record levels of spending this year, and I think one of the things that the legislature did really well was to look forward down the road and say, okay, what generational investments can we make in water infrastructure, in you know, some of these things, uh, transportation infrastructure, those types of things too, right? It's not just what do we need for the next year, but what are we going to be able to use, like you said, for the next 5, 10, 15 years. Ben, talk about some of those. We'll get into the bill specifically, but sort of the high level, why the session was so consequential. They had a ton of money to spend. They had a lot uh, of big issues to mm -hmm. tackle. You had everything from the Great Salt Lake to what Holly mentioned, transportation. You have uh, taxes, uh, you know, how you're going to grow as a state. Mm -hmm. All of that was wrapped up into one session, and uh, I think the money was the biggest thing that came out of this, just the sheer volume of spending, a $29 billion mm -hmm. budget, it's the largest we've ever had. Yeah, so, so big. Chris, when we worked in state government, we were down like 13 billion, small amounts. <laughs> so many things were funded this legislative session that will have impact. Talk about a couple of those. All of you just kind of look at this big budget that was just passed, some of those consequential budget items. Chris, what do you think? Well, I think uh, Ben mentions taxes and it's hard to ignore that, but what's amazing to me is the amount of money that they put aside continues in terms of managing the state well. They put money aside to help pay down uh, the road bonds that they've taken on the last couple of years and, and put that in a way that it will help them pay down that debt and, and make some money in the arbitrage, but also making sure that they have money in case of a recession and some things along those lines. Water, they, the amount of money that's put aside for infrastructure for water, helping to make sure that the Great Salt Lake continues to thrive was significant. I'll mention another one. They put $45 million aside for active transportation 
transportation. So connecting trails in with our system. We've been talking about multimodal. We did roads back in 2005. We added the TTIF for transit a few years ago and now have added active transportation fund. The legislature, those involved have have, have talked what they've walked the walk of the talk they've been talking for the last and couple years. And this is the, the transportation infrastructure fund, right? The so ATIP, the, the Active Transportation Investment Fund, yeah, exactly. Okay. Very good. Uh, ben, how about you? Uh, I think a lot of the money toward agriculture optimization, which is going to be huge when it comes to trying to save the Great Salt Lake. Um, 200 million right there for this new technology that helps farmers grow crops with less water. That's going to be significant. Yet another 200 million for commuter rail, mm -hmm. trying to speed right. that up, like uh, Chris had just mentioned uh, about you know transportation. Um, just a lot of issues, a lot of needs getting funded, but not everybody got what they wanted. Yeah. People got some of what they wanted, but they didn't get all of what they wanted, and some people didn't, still didn't, didn't get anything. Yeah. So Holly, talk about that, because some, some of these big asks did not get funded, in spite of a pretty yeah, good some, Yeah, some people didn't get anything, but I do have to mention, education was funded um, at mm -hmm. a, I think, record amount again this year, right? So, historic amount, yeah. Historic, so, so not only do we have increase in teacher salary, but we've got um, increase in WPU again, um, and all of that, I think, is, is significant for this session. One of the things that didn't get funded that, that I was personally a little bit sad about was Ray Ward's bill to take people off the DSPD waiting list. Which so, means? It, so Division of Services for People with Disabilities, and what his bill would do is to say, look, we're going to be able to take 200 people a year off this waiting list. Um, I have personal experience. I have a daughter who was on the list until she passed away. She never got funded. It was 17 years. Um, and he said the average wait time is now 25 years. So his bill would have taken 200 people off the year, um, off the waiting list every year by funding their needs. Uh, most of them are small, respite care, those types of things. So it passed uh, all the way through the legislature without uh, really any disagreement, but it wasn't funded in the final budget. Okay, uh, let's talk uh, about some of the bills that were consequential, but sort of flew under the radar. Any of those bills that you are watching that are going to impact Utahns that we might not have seen as much in the press? Well, I think one that needs to stand out, and, and Holly mentioned education funding, forgot all day K. I mean, that's something that right. they've been talking about for a huge. number of years yeah, and, and funded uh, all day K, which is, I think is a significant and consequential step forward for, for, for the citizens of the state. But I, I want to mention one that I know that you worked on, Jason, I think is really significant, and that is the funding of Moving Fort Douglas. Hmm. Uh, this is a historic military base that's served here mm -hmm. in the foothills uh, just outside of the University of Utah's boundaries. They're going to be moving to Camp Williams. And this is significant not only for the growth of that, that base, but also for the growth of the university, for the opportunities that we have here, and really uh, hitting the, the vision that President Randall has talked about in terms of turning this into a top public university in the, in, in the United States. And I think that that helps towards that vision. Yeah, absolutely right. Okay, anyone else? Things that flew under the radar. Hmm. I, 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 the education funding, it, it got a lot of attention, but I think what the, the longer term is going to be significant there. But I do think that the one thing that flew under the radar, maybe for me, was this Cottonwood Canyons transportation oh, right. line item. And, you know, people started wondering, is this gondola light or, mm -hmm. or what are we doing here? It looks like it's more of the phase-in approach, funding more buses, funding maybe some more transportation alternatives for that area. Mm -hmm. uh, looks like, you know, this is one to watch to see where the money goes and and what happens with it okay uh, the let's watch and see what happens let's get to that section of, of the show this evening because some of these consequential bills uh, have lawsuits already some have them coming and at least one has a referendum on the way Chris I, I see you're wearing a Utah flag 
uh, lapel pin. We know uh, where your loyalty yes. is. Yes. Let's talk about this. Uh, Senator Dan McKay was on the, the program last week, talked about his bill that did pass, but we already have a referendum uh, underway uh, to take this uh, take this bill back. Well, I am pro-flag. I think it's a great step forward for the state of Utah. I love the historic seal. Uh, I love that they kept the historical flag and will find ways to, to fly that and honor those that uh, that, that paid the, the dues on that and, and were involved in that. But I also think that it's important that we step forward as a state. And the, the flag really is not that endearing. I mean, nobody flies it. I, I was driving in this morning and already saw the, the new state flag flying on a couple of houses as I was driving in. I just think it's a great step. It honors the, the, his, the historical things that we love about our state, the beehive, the mountains, the, the red rocks, some of those kinds of things. But it also steps forward and it gives us a great marketing opportunity to say, this is what the state is, this is where we're headed. And, and I, think it's, I think it's wonderful. Uh -huh. it, it did not pass by a large enough margin to escape a potential referendum. Uh, but ben Tell us how big of a deal this is for this to actually get going forward. It will require this. 8% of the voters across 15 Senate districts, so this is about, this is what they'll need, 134,298 signatures by April 12th. That's May what it's the odds take. be ever in your favor. <laughs> Referendums are tough. <laughs> Ballot are. initiatives are tough. You've got to get a lot of signatures, and you've got to be out there hustling, and I don't know if the referendum backers have money that they're spending for paid signatures gatherers or anything like that but it's going to be a tough sell um, you know I think what we'll see is the limits of you know where this goes if if it can get traction or if it just ultimately falls flat you know you've got a little bit of time to get a lot of signatures mm -hmm. and the last time we saw this what was with the tax referendum and you had the support of grocery stores mm -hmm. you had the support of a lot of groups the left and the right coming together because they hated this tax package um, you may not see that this time around. You know, hard to say if uh -huh. they can do it. Holly, you talked to a lot of folks about this particular one. Why, why is there division that in terms of the people you're talking to? It's so interesting to me because I would not have anticipated that there was quite so much division. So some people are saying that they're offended that somehow this new flag um, is a, is a slam on pi early pioneer women maybe who created the first flag. Well, this is not the second flag, this is the 10th flag. So we're not going back to the original, right? But even when I was in the legislature a little bit more than a decade ago, we voted on a flag and changed where we put the year, right? From the inside to the outside. And so uh, anyway, it's it was really surprising to me that there were so many people who had such strong feelings about it, but they do tend to come from um, maybe further right uh, people who are delegates within the Republican system mm -hmm. and for some reason they have painted the sponsor as somebody who is pretty far left and uh, has these ideas now that we're gonna somehow overthrow our pioneer heritage which simply isn't true in my opinion. There was a great witness that spoke in the House hearing on this issue, and he talked about you know the the issues around creating a new flag, and that it was too easy to draw and too simplistic. And then he mentioned that this was actually the Canadian flag when they were changing it back in I think in the 1960s to the the, the maple leaf and the, and the red and white. That's a very simple flag, but everybody that thinks of Canada now identifies Canada with that flag. And he was making the same you know, argument that, yes, it was difficult then, people got all worked up, they said it was too simplistic, and now look how, how iconic it is, and I think we can see something similar with the Utah State okay, Flag. We'll watch this one closely, 40 days uh, they have. Uh, ben, uh, 
Let's talk about the abortion bill that was passed. We had a couple that were proposed. Several of them had some connection to the, to the abortion laws in the state, but this one ultimately did. This is Representative Carrie Ann Lizenby. Uh, talk about this bill for a moment and what we see happening right now in terms of the layout in terms of abortions in the state of Utah. Well, abortion clinics will have to close. Uh, I believe it's by May of this year mm -hmm. under the terms of this, and abortions uh, under the terms of Utah's laws, which is uh, up to 18 weeks in cases of rape, incest, or health of the mother will now be conducted in uh, in mm -hmm. hospitals and medical clinics. And that's what it does. And it basically is designed to sort of go hand in hand with the bill that Senator McKay passed mm -hmm. last year, which uh, was the mm -hmm. near total abortion ban. Yeah, so interesting. So this, uh, no more licensing after May, mm -hmm. and then closing them down entirely at the beginning of 2024. Uh, significant impact on people in the state of Utah, Holly, uh, in, in terms of like our hospitals right now, sure. what they're able to do and not do to Ben's good point. Yeah, I, I think one of the issues, right, that people have brought up is that it's significantly more expensive for the patient who, who is choosing that option or needs it medically or, you know, for whatever reason, that the cost in a clinic right now can be somewhere around $2,500. It's about 10 times that in the hospital setting. So that can uh, have a real impact as well. And, and I think one of the, one of the reasons this bill uh, it move forward this year really has got to be the overturn of Roe v. Wade, right? And we're putting it back on the state level and Utah has prided itself on being a pro-life uh, state for many, many years. And this just clarifies exactly what that means and where you can go. Mm -hmm. uh, Chris, we're gonna see lawsuits on this one uh, in the near future. Well, Ben would know that better than I. I suspect that we will. One of the things that I think is important to watch and concerns me, I mean, the state has always stuck to those three exceptions mm -hmm. and uh, how those get implemented or how easy, I don't want to say easy, but are they able to be done? I, I know that in the case of rape, uh, somebody has to take the responsibility to make sure that a police report has been filed, some of these things. And I, I worry about that just because of the impact that that could have on the, the individual that has been already been a victim in this case and how that actually is implemented. So there's some components there that I think it's, it's kind of wait to see how those actually operate. And I think here on out, you can just expect any time it touches this subject and a few others on Capitol Capitol Hill, you can just expect a lawsuit mm -hmm. every time the bill is signed. Mm -hmm. uh, let's talk about one more of those, Holly. Uh, there were a couple of bills on transgender health yep. uh, this legislative session. Uh, one of them in particular, Senator Michael Kennedy from Alpine, uh, bans gender-affirming surgery and puberty blockers in minors. Mm -hmm. Talk about that for just a moment, the bill and what we see happening next in those communities. So I think within the community is what, what you're seeing and what we're hearing is that they feel unwelcome, right? That they're um, definitely, they already struggle with mental health issues. Suicidal ideation um, is very high. And so as those bills move forward, right, that's that's where I think a whole entire community says, I don't know that I even belong in this state anymore. On the other side, you've got people saying, people who are under age, under 18, don't have the ability yet to make those types of decisions. The one thing that I would add is, unfortunately, um, one of the proposed amendments to that bill was to say there can be no cosmetic surgery for any minor, including breast implants and other uh, nose jobs, for example. Um, 
because if they can't make the decision on whether they want to be uh, male or female, they also can't make the decision that they're gonna alter what they were born with. Mm -hmm. So Ben, we, we're already seeing people talk about the lawsuits in this particular bill. Right, and that one sounds like it's already being drafted at this point. Uh, ACLU, National Center for Lesbian mm -hmm. Rights, has already threatened litigation over that. And again, this is another one of those subjects that I think anytime you see a bill on this, you can expect a lawsuit to follow it. Mm -hmm. We'll be following these bills closely because as you started the show, these are consequential for sure in the state. Uh, uh, Chris, I think this is an interesting time to talk about vetoes. Uh, <laughs> you know, you, you were a chief of staff, I was a chief of staff, you work with uh, these elected officials. The governor has the opportunity to either sign a bill, veto a bill, or let it go into signature without his signature, uh, if, if he pre prefers. Uh, you see any bills being vetoed this session? You know, I, I, I've two two thoughts that I have. I know one, the governor is very pleased with the session and the the significance, uh, the way that the legislature operated. They took issues seriously. They they really worked on them. I know that he's happy about that. There are some things around social media and education funding that he was uh, very uh, engaged on. Uh, he also threatened a couple of years ago that he would veto more bills, uh, and I think it's harder to do uh, in reality. You know that as well as anyone when you're actually up there and you've worked through some of those issues. So I suspect there will be a veto or two, but uh, I, don't, I don't know that it's even gonna be a high profile issue. There are some, there are some issues on the education front that I think mm -hmm. are some possibilities, but uh, he hasn't really indicated which of those bills are, are out there. Maybe a Mike McKell bill that he can get uh, you know, to, to, uh, in, in history. Yeah, but brother in law tradition. Really exactly. tradition. But, yeah, I don't, I don't know which ones he's, he's got high on his radar. It doesn't seem like there are a number of, a number of them right now. Uh -huh. so, so Holly's a former legislator too. It's, how does this play into there? Is this, sometimes people would say the governor needs to veto something just to kind of. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think he, he already, at the last night of the session, he said there were several bills that he was looking at vetoing, but they were killed in the process. And mm -hmm. so yeah. uh, before they got to his desk, he's not gonna need to veto. Uh, I, I do wanna mention one bill though that um, did pass and is not going to be vetoed. In fact, it might already be signed, but that's the domestic violence bill oh, right. um, from Senator L Todd Weiler. Talk about that. This was a, a big bill. Yeah, this was a big bill. And in fact, I was uh, listening to the Lieutenant Governor talk. Um, this bill was personal to her. Her cousin was killed in a domestic violence incident mm -hmm. um, in August of last year. And, and so she spent a lot of the interim going around and talking with uh, all relevant agencies, police agencies, LEAs, those types of things. Um, um, but what what this bill does will require a lethality assessment when p uh, police go out on a domestic violence call. And then there's a companion piece that will put it all in a database yeah. and look at those numbers. I think it's important enough that we talk about what a lethality is. A lethality assessment is basically um, a questionnaire. There's, top, there's three top ones yeah. where if you answer yes to any of those top three questions, yeah. um, that immediately um, it triggers a process to say, we're gonna give you, we're gonna, first of all, we're gonna tell you you're in danger, right? If you mm -hmm. answer yes that he has a gun and has threatened homicide, you know, to kill you or to kill your kids, um, we're going to put you into uh, some kind of a process where you can start accessing. Um, services within the community. But there's also another one um, on strangulation. It is it is actually goes together with um, future homicide, domestic violence homicide, so that 
people don't realize that choking and being strangled, not even maybe necessarily to the point of passing out, actually is indicative of you're gonna lose your life at some point. And, and I think that that's super important. What Utah had was um, kind of a piecemeal, so some departments used lethality assessments mm -hmm. and some did not, but what this will say is all of Utah will use these assessments. Mm -hmm. And tracks it over time. So and we're gonna track it over time. So that if yeah. we have something in the future, yeah. we won't yeah. miss something that happened previously. Yeah, that's okay, right. very, very good. Uh, ben, I wanna talk about uh, education for just a moment uh, in terms of what we might see coming forward when it comes to um, the uh, scholarships that will be coming. There was a time when there's a referendum on this very issue. Uh, it seems like that's not the case this time. This bill has passed, scholarships are put in place, it's tied to education funding. Is this one just done? Uh, at this point, it seems like it is because if you try to referendum, I don't think it actually, I think it passed with the referendum yeah, proof, so right that's, that's not gonna happen. Um, certainly, teachers unions have had a real problem with this idea of sort of a hostage situation where you get this teacher salary increase, but you also have this mm -hmm. school choice scholarship program. Uh, we're seeing that also play out with the tax discussions about the earmark and the right. income tax. You get that with the sales tax on food. So, you know, you have a real choice to make here. Uh, but this, this, this salary thing was big, um, but what we're seeing is a lot of these issues getting tied together yeah. by Capitol Hill sort of presenting this this choice that you have to make. Yeah, Chris, talk about the strategy there, because they are connected, right? Teacher pay connected to these scholarships. Food tax tied to the constitutional earmark for education. Yeah, funding. and I'm glad Ben mentioned that. I mean, here we removed the sales tax on food and we haven't even really gotten to it. I mean, that's how, how significant the number of issues they dealt with they are. You know, I don't have a problem with it, and the, the reason is this. Um, Legislating is not easy, and it does require trade-offs. When, when you develop compromises, when you work through it, rarely, if ever, are issues simply black and white. Oh, I want that, I don't want that. And so that binary nature is often presented by political pundits, lobbyists, consultants, others as, oh, it's, it's a good or it's a bad thing. And legislating is so much more difficult than that and intertwined. And so I think that it is appropriate for them to look at and say, look, we can remove sales tax on food, uh, th that's a general fund item, mm -hmm. uh, but in order to do that, we have to create some flexibility on the other side. And so is this something that's popular for something that's maybe mm -hmm. a little bit more difficult? Absolutely, but that's what legislating and lawmaking is all about, is making those difficult decisions and those trade-offs. And th so I think it's appropriate for the legislature to say to citizens, if you want X, we need Y, because that's what lawmaking is all about. Go ahead, Holly, through the lens of a former legislator. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I totally agree, and I think one of the things, though, that becomes an issue, especially as you put it out in the public, is it's easy to argue against one piece of it, Absolutely, right? Absolutely, yeah. So if you vote for HB 215, which was the bill that tied um, teacher salary increases with this scholarship, right, it was the either or. You either love teachers or you love, you know, parents. And, and of course, nothing is that simplistic. It's not, it's not really that simple. Um, I think it'll be interesting to see how much effort is put into this, uh, the, the bill on the taxes is actually gonna be on the 2024 ballot. There's quite a while um, for people to talk about it, discuss it, and get it out there. So is removing the sales tax on food popular? It sure is. Is changing the Constitution popular? Probably less so, right? So it depends on, yeah. I think, all the public relations yeah. campaign. And it should be worth pointing out, the negotiations are still ongoing. Sure. The, the proposed yeah. amendment passed out, but they have a year and a half 
have to mm -hmm. keep working on it. You have an entire interim and another session where you can get this out there and finesse the language. Um, the Utah Education Association at this point has taken no position on it. That's not neutrality, that's not opposition, that's not support. Other groups have jumped on board in support. But what they're going to do is they're going to take it to their members, their delegates in uh, April, I believe, and, um, you know, talk about it, see where the temperature is. Uh, Senate Majority Whip Ann Milner has said mm -hmm. they'll keep negotiating, they'll keep talking, they can keep working on this idea of some trade-offs even within that proposed constitutional amendment, such as, uh, first of all, the earmark remains, mm -hmm. but there would be a funding formula tied to inflation and, and some other things there. And then, if all of that is taken care of, then the state can dip in for other needs. That's the deal, at least as it's presented now. That could still change in the next year and a half. Mm -hmm. Well, watch it closely. We got a legislative session between now and then. Mm -hmm. A lot can happen on that particular uh, piece of legislation. Can we spend the last couple of minutes here talking about this national stage, just a little bit about what's happening in politics as we get ready for that next election cycle? And Senator Mitt Romney got involved with a couple conversations with Tucker Carlson this week about what happened on January 6th. And uh, I want to show a clip, and then maybe we'll start with you, Chris, to talk about why Mitt Romney is weighing in, the, in this particular way and why Utah is even part of this discussion. Let's show this clip. There's no question but that January 6th was a riot, a, an insurrection attempt, an effort to overturn the process designed in the Constitution to uh, allow the voice of the people to be carried out in, in who we have as our elected representatives. Uh, it was an outrageous act. Uh, a lot of people were injured. Our building was, uh, was severely damaged. And uh, efforts to try and pretend that it was something other than that are despicable and, and frankly, dangerous because it makes it more likely that people will think things like this are acceptable and they might try and do them in the future. It's simply, uh, uh, it's awful what some people are willing to do to get some eyeballs or get a little extra money. Chris, co comment about this statement from Senator Romney. Well, I think uh, Senator Romney stands as kind of a moral conscience on a number of these issues, and I, I'm proud of him for doing it. I think it's important that he does. Uh, it, it is, I think there is an effort to, to whitewash uh, a number of these issues and uh, try to look at it through a different lens, and I do think it is dangerous. And so I'm, I, I think it's good that the state of Utah stands uh, in opposition to that through our elected representatives, and we should analyze and see uh, make sure that these these types of things can't happen again in the future. Mm -hmm. uh, just go and give us this perspective, Holly. I, you know, I just think it's so interesting because it wasn't actually that long ago, and now we we could see it live streamed as it was happening, right? And now we're being told, well, you didn't really see what it was. It really was mild. It really was people just, you know, milling around, and it, it really was not that. And and I I do appreciate Mitt Romney standing up and calling it for what it is. Our, our last twenty seconds, uh, Ben. You, Utah seems to be a go-to place. People on the national stage looking for leadership on these particular sorts of positions. Uh, Positions. Mitt speaks his mind. That's kind of how it is, is what he's definitely created. And, and Senator Lee, to another extent, yeah. speaks his mind as well. They, they both do. And thank you all for speaking yours this evening <laughs> as well. We appreciate it. Thank you for listening to The Hinkley Report. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help more people find out about it, please rate it and leave us a positive review.